Welcome to a new series of employment podcasts from the Stevenson Harwood employment team. We'll be recording the podcasts on a monthly basis and we aim to give you some practical tips on common issues and a summary of key employment law developments and how they'll impact on your business. We appreciate that your time is precious so we'll keep them short and sweet. My name is Beth Hale and I'm a senior associate in the team. I have with me Parvis Ghani, an employment partner, and today we're going to be discussing gender pay gap reporting and the gender pay gap information regulations that came into force on the 6th of April this year. So Parvis, before we go into the details, can you give us the background to the new reporting duty? Yes, um, the background to this is we uh, have a pay gap of around 19% in the UK. And in the last election, the government made a manifesto commitment to end gender pay gap uh, within a generation. So the idea behind these regulations is that would increase transparency and go some way towards reducing the gender pay gap. So in February last year, the government published draft regulations um, along with a consultation and the finalised regs were published in December last year. In January this year, ACAS then published a draft guidance and that deals with complying with the regs. And who's affected? Right, so employers in Great Britain are affected and those uh, which have 250 or more employees on the snapshot date, which is the 5th of April. I'm going to come on to the snapshot date shortly, but when we talk about employers, we're talking about employers in the private and voluntary sectors. Uh, There are separate regs that deal with public sector employers, and uh, I won't be covering that in this podcast. So uh, employers would include uh, companies, LLPs, partnerships, unincorporated bodies, or any other type of employing entity. When looking at companies, you'd look at individual companies, not group companies. So if you have a group structure of, say, A, B, C and D, each company that has fewer than 250 employees, the regs won't come into play. What about employees? Well, uh, this is not defined uh, in the regs. Uh, The ACAS guidance and the memorandum that accompanied the regs state that an employee means anyone who's employed uh, under a contract of service a contract of apprenticeship or a contract to personally do work. So this would include employees, uh, casual workers and some contractors where there is a requirement for personal service. But the reporting duties only apply to relevant employees and this is defined as those who are employed on the snapshot date, which is of course the 5th of April. But there are some exclusions to this. So partners are excluded from this reporting duty. Now it is arguable that in a partnership uh, or LP, partners should be included for the purposes of working out if the 250 threshold is met, but the ACAS guidance states that uh, they are excluded. Employees are on leave uh, at the snapshot date and receive less than full pay, they are excluded. So, for example, employees on sick leave, family-related leave like maternity, or those on sabbaticals can be excluded if they receive less than full pay. What about overseas employees? Well, it's not clear from the regs if they should be included. The ACAS guidance states that if they have a strong connection with Great Britain, they should be included. Now, if you adopted that approach, uh, it could be quite onerous for the employer in working out um, that population. Employers might take the view that uh, they shouldn't include this uh, group and make it clear in the report that that they're only including employees in Great Britain. Now, given the lack of sanctions and the teeth behind these regulations, this could be a position that some employers... Uh, take. I think the key here is to comply with the regs and where there are grey areas like the issue of overseas employees I think you need to make it clear in the report who and who you're not including in your data. I think that would be a reasonable position to take and it's unlikely that an employer would come under any criticism if they do so. And what will have to be reported? Employers will have to publish six sets of data over a specific reference period according to how the employee is paid. 
So for example, if they're paid monthly, the pay period is one month. But the pay period must capture the 5th of April, which is what I mentioned earlier as the snapshot date. Now the six sets of data are as follows. So the first one is the percentage difference in mean hourly pay between male and female employees. The second is the percentage difference in median hourly pay between male and female employees. The third is the percentage difference in mean bonus paid to male and female employees over a 12-month period. The fourth is the percentage difference in medium bonus paid to male and female employees over a 12-month period. Uh, the fifth is the proportion of male and female employees who've received a bonus over the same 12-month period. And finally, the sixth is uh, the proportion of male and female employees within four quartile pay bands. Now, each quartile would need to contain an equal number of employees. So, to work out your quartiles, you'd rank the employees from the lowest paid to the highest paid and then divide the employees into four sections. Now, if you have employees on the same hourly pay rate, some employees on the boundary should be split between the quartile below and the quartile above. So you reach a situation where the quartiles have an equal proportion of employees. And what does pay include? So pay includes ordinary pay paid to the employee, pay for any leave taken if they receive full pay, uh, bonuses and allowances. But pay does not include overtime, redundancy or termination payments, payments in lieu of leave, benefits in kind or expenses, and pension contributions made by the employer as this is not paid to the employee. So the bonus paid in the pay period incorporating the 5th of April must be included as part of the overall pay gap figure, but that can be prorated. So for example, if, you, if an employee is paid a bonus in April, then only one twelfth of the bonus would be taken into account when calculating the hourly pay. Now what is bonus pay? Bonus pay is defined as remuneration in the form of money, securities, vouchers, securities options or interest in securities uh, and which relates to profit sharing, productivity, performance or incentives or commission. What about non-cash bonuses like shares? Well payment of non-cash bonuses are deemed to have been paid to the employee at the time they give rise to a taxable earnings income. So in short it depends on how it's taxed and when the tax charge arises. So for example if a bonus was awarded in a previous year but payment is deferred to the pay period capturing the 5th of April, then that should be captured when calculating the hourly pay for the purposes of gender pay gap reporting. And is the obligation on employers just to provide the bare statistics or must they also include some kind of explanation? So there's no obligation to provide an explanation, but uh, I think context will be important. Many employers will want to explain what is behind any stark differences or any skewed figures. So for example, uh, it might not be many female employees at senior level positions, and this could have an impact on the data. Employers may also want to consider explaining to staff the contents of its report and the reasons for any gap and what is being done to address it. The advantage of this is that it could head off any misunderstanding amongst employees that they receive less pay than their peers. Also, employers may want to paint a positive picture and what it will do to tackle underrepresentation of female uh, employees at the top if that is the, the situation that exists. And when and where does the information have to be published? Well, employers will have to be required to calculate the gender pay gap information in their business um, as of the 5th of April each year, and they must publish it within 12 months. So the first snapshot date, or the first data collection point, is at the 5th of April 2017. This means that employers should collect the information which covers the 5th of April this year, and then have until the 5th of April 2018 to publish this. The information must be published on the employer's website in English in a manner that is accessible to all employees and the public 
and must be kept on that their site for a period three of at least three years. Importantly, the publication must be accompanied by a signed written statement from a senior person who confirms it is accurate. In the case of a company, the senior person must be a director. The information must also be uploaded onto a government-sponsored website, but the details of the website have not yet been released. Uh, and the government has said that they have plans to publish a pay gap data by sector in a league table. And what happens to an employer if they don't comply with the regulations? Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are no penalties for non-compliance, and we're unlikely to see um, any penalty provisions introduced uh, in the near future. Um, employers that do not comply may find themselves at the tail end uh, of a public shaming campaign by the public media and or shareholders and that obviously could have uh, some uh, reputational damage. Now the ACAS guidance does state however that the Equality Human Rights Commission has the power to enforce any failure to comply. Now I think there's a question mark over this because they have limited resources and I think if they're going to um, go after any employees probably the ones who have not complied in at all. So finally what are the potential implications for employers and what action should they be taking now to be ready for next April? Well, in terms of implications, um, you could see more litigation in this area, particularly on equal pay claims. Now, that's not because there's sufficient information in the data that you would need to publish would support such an equal pay claim, uh, because they are actually hard claims to bring. The, the, the reason behind a potential increase in litigation is, is really about perception. So if you have an employee who's got uh, a grievance, they could throw in an equal pay claim. If they feel there's a gender pay gap that applies to them, and that is there for discriminatory reasons. Now, what should you be doing now as an employer? Well, I think the first thing you need to do is to look at your employee population and work out who is in scope for the purposes of your reporting obligations. You should then consider what elements of pay uh, should be in scope and then decide uh, how you want to report. Do you want to just give the bare minimum information or do you want to go further and provide a report with some context and narrative? Uh, I think context and narrative would be helpful to explain any gaps. You can also do spot checks within your organisation to see if you've got any systemic problems. Now, in doing all of this, I think it's worth bearing in mind that you could use lawyers to do some of the initial exploratory work under the guise of privilege. Now, the advantage of doing that is that would provide you with protection and you'd be safe in the knowledge that the analysis done would not need to be disclosed if there were to be any litigation. You should also get buy-in from your organisation because uh, a senior person would need to sign this. So if you're a company, a director would need to sign it. So it's important that they are fully on board. And worthwhile, of course, bearing in mind, if there is a gender pay gap, then consider an action plan and really how uh, you can reduce that within your organisation. And think about the steps that can be taken. You can paint a positive picture to your staff in how you can address such a gap in the years to come. Thanks very much, Parvis, and thanks for listening. Mm